Before we get into Acts 25, verse 23, which is basically where we left things off last Sunday, I want to just give you a little bit of a recap in case you haven't been with us the last few Sundays. The Apostle Paul has made his way to Jerusalem, kind of against the will and leaning of God. Upon arrival, things did not go like he planned. He hoped that he would be able to preach Christ to his brethren, that they would receive Christ as their Messiah, but everything blew up in his face. The Jews rushed him in the temple. They tried to kill him. He was saved by Claudius Lysias, the commander there in Jerusalem, the Roman commander. Unsure what to do with Paul, he sends him under protective guard to Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region. There was a group of Jews determined to kill him. While in Caesarea, his case is heard before the present governor, that being a man by the name of Felix. Felix hears the accused. He hears Paul's defense. His conclusion is that Paul is innocent, but Paul is a political hot potato. For two years, Paul stays in Caesarea under house arrest. He has freedom. He does some writing. It is our theory, our premise, that it's during this time period that he begins to work with his dear friend Luke, our author, compiling a, a historical document citing how Christianity developed, the Gospel of Luke, and then how it spread the book of Acts. At some point, Felix is called back to Rome. He wants to do the Jews a favor. He leaves Paul in prison. He's replaced by a, name, a man named Festus. And Festus carries over this political hot potato, a pickle, so to speak, because on one aspect, the man knows that Paul's innocent. He realizes that Paul should be freed. He's a Roman citizen. His incarceration is illegal. He realizes he needs to release him. But the flip side to it, because Felix had made such a mess of the relationship between the Jews and the Romans, that Festus was specifically commissioned to come in and kind of clean up the mess, tidy over relations with the Jewish people. So he realizes he should let Paul go. That's the legal thing, ethical thing to do. But the flip side to it, he realizes that to do that would really tick off the Jews. And he's been sent with the, uh, with the charge to clean things up. So he's kind of caught between two things. He proposes to Paul, why don't you come to Jerusalem? We'll retry your case. And Paul's like, the third time is not the charm. I'm going to appeal my case to Caesar. So Paul has appealed his case as a Roman citizen, that was a right and privilege, to have his case heard before Nero. But Festus still remains in a bit of a, a bind. What's the charge? What case is Paul even appealing? Sure, he's got to send him to Rome, but under what pretense? You see, Festus has to come up with a reason why Paul is being sent to Nero and why, as a Roman citizen, he's been incarcerated for two years. Now, as we left things off last Sunday, King Agrippa and Bernice have come to Caesarea to welcome the new governor, Festus. And both were familiar with the inner workings of the Jewish political machine. And because this was the case, Festus does something, well, wise. Agrippa's there, Bernice is there, he's dealing with this peculiar case of Paul. He proposes, Agrippa, I'm in this bind. Would you mind hearing this case? Would you mind gathering some of the facts? Could you help a brother out? Give me some advice on what I should write to send to Rome about why this guy 
is arrested and why he's so upset the Jews. Festus recounts his experiences with Paul. His conversations with the Jews determined to kill him. Festus concludes, and we saw this last Sunday, that after hearing the case, he believed the matter really boiled down to a fundamental disagreement, quote, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive, of which he says, quote, I was uncertain of such questions. So Festus doesn't have a context for Judaism, Jewish law, Jesus, this new movement. He's kind of in the dark, and he's hoping that Agrippa and Bernice can shed some light on the situation. Now, we left things off. Agrippa, Bernice, they've agreed to speak with Paul, hoping that in the process, their interview might be able to provide Festus with something useful. Now, before we get to the, the text, let's just very quickly profile who this King Agrippa is and Bernice. Herod Agrippa II was the seventh and final king of what we would call the Herodian dynasty. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospels, you've been reading through the book of Acts, you'll notice that we have a lot of Herods. They're all different. They're all part of the same family. They're all part of the same dynasty. They're all kings, but they're all different. For example, when Jesus was born, And remember the wise men came from the east. They came to Jerusalem, hoping to find a king. They came to Herod the Great. And you know, Herod had the scheme. Go find him, bring back word. I'll come and worship him. When in reality, he just wanted to kill this king who could be a threat. Herod the Great is this Herod's great-grandfather. We also have a man by the name of Herod Antipas, who ruled during the time of Jesus' ministry. This is the Herod directly responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. This would be this Herod's great uncle, Herod Antipas. Then you have Herod Agrippa I, also a character we've even seen in the book of Acts. This was the Herod that killed the apostle James, had him beheaded, and would later wear a shiny coat, receive the praises as if he were God, and get struck by worms and die. That actually happens in the very amphitheater we're gonna see his son in. So, a flow of the Herods. Now, what makes Herod Agrippa II somewhat unique to his forerunners is that he was raised and educated in Rome in the court of Claudius Caesar, a close friend. And though Agrippa had proven to be an outspoken supporter of the Hebrew people, he had also earned the confidence of the Roman power brokers. By Acts 25, Agrippa has not only been made king over a large area, but he's also been given specific authority over the temple and the appointing of the high priest. He is connected. Interestingly enough, Bernice is kind of a colorful character in her own right. She's technically Agrippa's half-sister. And it was largely rumored throughout Judea that her and her brother were actually engaged in some type of incestuous relationship. It was a scandal during this particular time period. Uh, For context, last Sunday we met Drusilla, Felix's wife, Acts 24, She is the youngest sister of both Agrippa and Bernice. So it's a connected political family, 
but they have strong ties in the region, and that's important for our understanding of our passage. Verse 23, so the next day. When Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, you got to imagine the scene. First, the setting. This is probably the amphitheater there in Caesarea. You can go see the ruins of it today. It's a 25,000-seat auditorium. It's pretty awesome. It's majestic. More than likely, this happens to be uh, where the scene unfolds. You had this large group of Roman commanders, it being the capital of the region, filled with Roman uh, nobility. We're told that prominent men also filled the amphitheater. Not only does Festus, as we can see the scene uh, unfold, enter into the arena with what we can imagine to be great fanfare, but then Agrippa and Bernice, the guests, they come in with what Luke just simply calls great pomp. Trumpets are blazing, people are standing, everyone is cheering. All the focus is on Agrippa and Bernice as they come to join Festus. And so when everything calms down, everyone's taking their seats. As we're told, Festus stands up and he commands for the main attraction to come center stage. Now, now imagine, you have all this pomp, all this circumstance, all of this Roman power. But what have they gathered for? Paul. And so in walks what historically we could probably consider a very small Jewish man, humpback, probably balding. If you factor in all the beatings the man's endured, he's weathered. He's kind of a shell of a person on the outside. Nothing glorious, nothing uh, inspiring, nothing with pomp, you would say, concerning Paul. And yet he enters and he's put center stage and you have all of the power of Rome now focusing in on this Jewish tent maker slash rabbi. Now considering the moment, Festus kind of needs to now explain to the audience why they've gathered to hear from this man. So we're told, verse 24, that Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him, <laughs> but, and now he kind of explains his problem, I have nothing certain to write my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I might have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. I think we could all agree that that is not a reasonable situation. Festus begins by explaining to this crowd of curious onlookers the purpose they had gathered and why this humble Jewish prisoner has been trotted before them. He explains that while he had heard the case of the Jews against Paul, personally, he had reached the conclusion, quote, that he had done nothing deserving of death. However, 
Because Paul has appealed his case to Augustus, he's now obligated to send him to Rome, but he needs something to write concerning him, saying that it would be, you know, unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges. Festus hopes that after allowing Agrippa the opportunity to hear from Paul, he might be better able to advise him on what to write. Then Agrippa, chapter 26, verse 1, said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand, no doubt to quiet the crowd, and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I, I beg that you would hear me patiently. Now, now, Paul's excited for this opportunity to present his case before someone who knows something. Felix, Festus, as Romans, they don't know much concerning the inner workings of how the Jews handled p political and legal matters. Agrippa, though, while immoral, does. At least, as Paul uh, recounts, he has an, a basic understanding of Jewish laws and customs. Now, what we're going to find here in the rest of chapter 26 is the, the longest sermon that Paul gives in the entire book of Acts. It's the longest recorded sermon. He's got Agrippa's attention. He's got this auditorium full of prominent Romans, prominent men. He's given the opportunity to speak for himself, to answer for himself. So we're going to find here his longest sermon, hence why he would say, I beg that you be patient. Let me explain myself. Let me work this out. Verse 4, Paul continues, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. You might want to underline that, that, uh, that sentence, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Now let's break this down. In addition to laying out his background in Judaism, of which this is the third time Paul kind of recounts his story, so we don't need to get into the particulars or the details, other than just to remind ourselves that his credentials was that he was a Pharisee, and he had lived according to the strictest set of their religion. But Paul explains to Agrippa, beyond his credentials, what specific religious belief he had adopted as a Pharisee, as someone raised in Jerusalem, what belief he had held to that so angered the Jews. He says, quote, I stand and am judged, why? For the hope which can be literally translated the expectation of the promise made by God 
to our fathers. So he's saying there was a promise made to our fathers that we hope for, that we expect, that we look for. And it's this that I'm being accused concerning. Now, what promise had God given to the Hebrew people? Well, beginning in Genesis chapter three and really working its way throughout all of the, the history and all the poetic books and all of the prophets, all the way from Genesis three to Malachi. The central core promise that God had given his people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, was that of a coming savior, a promised Messiah. Paul continues by then explaining that the coming of this Messiah, this hope, this expectation was so central. He says that our 12 tribes, speaking to the nation, earnestly serve God night and day, hoping he'd come sooner than later. This word attain, hope to attain the promise, can be better translated to come or arrive. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, if you really want to know what belief, what central belief I hold that has so irritated the Jewish establishment, well, it has to deal with the Messiah, which really shouldn't be that nuts because we've all longed for the arrival of the Messiah. We've all looked for the Messiah. We've all hoped for the Messiah. That's the central idea. My beliefs on the Messiah is what has ticked off the Jewish establishment. He concludes by then telling Agrippa that it was because of this belief, ultimately his belief that the Messiah had come and the person of Jesus, hence he says, for this hope's sake, he was being, quote, accused by the Jews. So really, when it's all said and done, why did the Jews hate Paul so much? is that Paul believed Jesus was the Messiah. He believed he was the Savior. He believed that he had been sent by God in the same manner that it had been predicted in all of the Old Testament law and prophets. He's saying, it's my belief that the Messiah came that has ticked everyone off. Now, because Paul knew Agrippa, unlike Felix or Festus, was already familiar with a position that Paul doesn't exactly delve into, but understands that they're on the same page. A position made by Christians, that the resurrection of Jesus was the central evidence of his Messiahship. He references this by, by then immediately addressing his skepticism, right? It's kind of a weird transition. As he's working through this, it's the Messiah, it's my belief about the Messiah, it's my belief that the hope has come, and then, and then he says, it's kind of a weird, out-of-nowhere statement, why should you be skeptical? Why should you be surprised that God would raise the dead? Agrippa knew that in regards to this sect of the Nazarenes, the Christians, in regards to their position that Jesus was the Messiah, that theological belief completely hung on one thought, one idea, one claim. And that was that Jesus had died, but had been resurrected from the dead, and the resurrection validates Jesus's Messiahship. If you remember, Festus, even in talking to Agrippa, says it's the, something to do with their religion, right? That Jesus, this guy Jesus, died, but Paul says is alive, right? The whole crux, the whole issue boils down to did Jesus rise or did he not? Because if he did, he's the Messiah, and the Christians are right. If he didn't, then it's an abomination and heresy. He says, why should it be thought incredible to believe that God raises the dead? Now, it's with that question kind of ringing in the ears of Agrippa. 
that Paul continues by kind of sympathizing to a degree with Agrippa's obvious skepticism concerning the resurrection. Paul will kind of explain, I understand why you're skeptical, and he's going to say, I was as well. Look at it. Indeed, concerning this idea of resurrection, indeed, I thought myself that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul explains that not only did he reject the idea of resurrection, he rejected then the implications that Jesus was the Messiah. And because he had rejected these things, he explains to Agrippa that he was convinced that it was now therefore his duty to act contrary to the name of Jesus. Notice how he did this. He says, by shutting up the saints in prison, I was acting contrary to the name of Jesus. By putting some to death, I was acting contrary. By casting my vote against them, by punishing them often, compelling them to blaspheme God. Paul says, in my rage against the name of Jesus, I persecuted them. Now, Paul's point, and we've looked at this before, but his point in recounting his brutal persecution of the church was to now set up a contrast for what would soon happen. So do you understand the flow? The Jews are upset with me because of my position concerning the Messiah. Ultimately, that Jesus is the Messiah, validated by his resurrection. But I didn't always accept that. There was a time that I rejected it and acted contrary to the name of Jesus. I mean, not only was I a theological skeptic, I was active viewing this as a heresy. So I understand why you could be skeptical. I was right there with you, Agrippa. However, while thus occupied, verse 12, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And recounting his conversion, Paul explains to Agrippa, what it was that ultimately convinced him of the resurrection and therefore the messiahship of Jesus. And what was it? It had been a personal encounter with a very living Jesus that had changed his mind about resurrection because if you're still dead, you don't appear to people. 
And if you're alive after being dead, that means you're God. Kind of validation, 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 now acceptance. This is what Paul's saying to Agrippa. The Jews are upset with me because I preach that Jesus is the Messiah, which is not crazy because we're to be hoping for the coming of the Messiah. And in light of the fact that I encountered this guy who had been dead before, what else am I supposed to do? There's only so much evidence you can ultimately reject. When Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, what are you supposed to do at that point? Following his explanation of what has transformed his life from being a skeptic to a proponent, Paul justifies his own actions from that point forward after the encounter with Jesus, saying, look at it, that Jesus appeared to me for this purpose. And he says, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things you have seen and of the things I will yet reveal to you. I love that. Paul's like, why did Jesus appear to me? Why did Jesus save me? Why did Jesus step into my dark life with his glorious light? Of, of all people, why me? Paul says that Jesus saved him. And immediately, note, he became two things for this purpose, right? First, that Paul became a minister. Now, we talk about a minister. And you're like, yeah, that's what you are. You're a minister. And I'm kind of a layman. I just kind of, I come and I sit. You're the minister and, and I'm, the, I'm part of the congregation, right? That's how this works. No, not, not really, because the word minister means way more than that. It's actually a fascinating word. In the Greek, and I'm not going to try to say it because I'm not Greek, but it means literally an under rower. It's the idea of, of the folks that there's a captain of the ship, but the ship needs to move. And so there are people in the, the bottom of the ship holding an oar, rowing. So Jesus is moving it and directing it, but you're an under rower. It's basically the job of slaves, right? That's what the word means. It means literally anyone who aids in the work of another. And consider this for a moment. Who was Paul called to aid? Well, he was a minister of Jesus. He was called to aid Jesus. In whose work? Paul's work? No. As a minister, Paul was called to aid Jesus in Jesus' work. Understand, our job as ministers is not to go do whatever we want to do. It's to seek the Lord, what do you want me to do? What will do you want to accomplish? I don't want any of me involved in this. I want to be your hands and your feet. I just want to be an under rower. You guide, you direct. I'll just, I'm nothing more than muscle. And, and for me, not a lot of it. I'm nothing but a, a good amount of fat and a little bit of muscle. But you can use me however you want to, Jesus, right? I mean, we're an under rower. We're called to be ministers. Note also that Paul, in addition to becoming a minister, became a witness, this Greek word witness can literally be translated as martyr. A minister and a martyr. Now, we, we often kind of incorrectly view a martyr as being a person who dies for a set of beliefs. 
You know, we, we see someone, we're like, oh, they were martyred for their faith. But that's not exactly what the word means. In a biblical sense, a martyr isn't someone who dies for a set of beliefs. It's someone who's already died for a set of beliefs. It's a person who's already laid down their life for a set of beliefs. You see, the act of dying for a set of beliefs isn't what makes you a martyr. Rather, the act of dying for a set of beliefs serves to confirm that you've always been a martyr. I'm not trying to split hairs, but I think that's a profound difference. Have you already died to yourself? Have you already laid down your life? Because if you haven't, you won't if you actually have to. Death only confirms I've always been a martyr. It doesn't in that moment make me one. So here we have Paul. Jesus intervenes. Jesus comes into his life. Jesus steps through the darkness. And immediately Paul is made two things, a minister and a witness. Please keep in mind that if you've experienced an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, it is also brought into your life the same two transformations. You have been made. If Jesus has changed your life, you've been made both a minister and a witness of the things you have seen and of the things he'll continue to reveal to you. The idea behind this is not that this was unique to Paul. The idea is that becoming these things, a minister and a witness, was the natural result of the encounter itself. It's not as though Jesus appeared to Paul and then told him, go do these things. It's that Jesus appeared to Paul and immediately because of that encounter, he became two things. Meeting Jesus made him a minister. It made him a witness. He didn't do these things. He became these things independent of any type of activity. Understand, when we talk about like, oh, I'm to be a witness. That doesn't mean that you go out and you're, and you're witnessing. Like that's not what makes you, the activity isn't what makes you a witness. Oh, I go do a lot of witnessing. No, no, you are a witness. It's an identity. I am always a witness. It's not, well, I kind of go and I do my witnessing thing on the weekend, maybe Sunday, but I really don't do my witnessing thing at work because like, I kind of subdivide it out. I, I like to be a witness, um, you know, at, at, at the neighborhood functions with the kids. But, you know, when I'm with the guys, I, I'm really not interested in being much of a witness. Like, that's not how it works. You are a witness. Witnessing is what you do. Being a witness is what you are if you've encountered Jesus. You've witnessed something. In addition to that, a minister, that's also not something you go do. It's what you are. I am a minister. You are a minister. Your job is to be about doing Jesus' work. In whatever form, in whatever way that, that takes place in your life. If you've encountered Jesus, you are those two things, whether you like it or not. See, the question, the change in thinking shouldn't be this. Do I go do enough witnessing? Or do I do enough ministering? The question should be, Am I a good minister or am I a good witness? It's an identity based upon a transformation 
that yes, does yield an activity. But often we look at the activity as the identity. It doesn't work that way. It's the opposite. So Paul's like, I encountered Jesus and I've been made a witness. I've been made a minister. And because of that, Jesus commissioned me, Paul continues, to go into the world in order to, to notice it, to open their eyes there, basically anyone he encounters, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus is calling him to do. You see, Paul is explaining to Agrippa that the ultimate purpose behind everything Jesus had done on the cross and through his resurrection and why he then sent his followers into the world carrying a commission is that Jesus wanted the revelation of what he had done on the cross to open the eyes of men to the reality there is a different way. There is a better way. No longer do men have to live in darkness under the power of Satan. If only they turn from these things to light and to God. We have a word for that, don't we? It's called repentance. To turn from, to turn to. Turn to. If they would repent, they would immediately find themselves, quote, forgiven of sins. Which is what? It's justification before God. To be seen by God just as if I'd never sinned through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin. Providing then a glorious inheritance. Purification. That we've been covered by the blood. That we've been adopted as children into God's family. That when God's sees us, he sees Jesus, and thus the inheritance of Jesus as the rightful heir gets attributed to us because we are in Christ and not in ourselves. And then notice, in sanctification by faith in Jesus, that we're given a new life, lived by grace through the indwelling spirit of God, that we're made perfect, that we're made more into the image of Jesus, that we're made better people, not by works, not by what we do, but by a connection with God through the spirit of God that then transforms us naturally into these things. Sanctification by faith. I'm saved by faith, but I am made better by faith and it's not me. It's never been me, never will be me. It's always about him. Therefore, King Agrippa. I mean, Paul's laying it out, isn't he? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Paul's telling Agrippa, and ultimately Festus, right? You need a reason. You need to write a little note. You need a reason why the Jews want to kill me, why they seized me in the temple, why they're hell-bent on my destruction. Here it is. If you need a reason you're sending me, if you need a crime I'm guilty of, simple. I was being obedient to the commands of God. My friend, there will come a day where we'll say the same. 
that I am being obedient to the commands of God. Paul says after receiving the heavenly vision, he confesses that the message he's now spent the last 20 plus years preaching to anyone that would listen, and we've seen this over and over and over again, right? Was that in light of the resurrected Jesus, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. There's a better way that we can have, not just for eternity, but right now, if we would just repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. This phrase, befitting of repentance, to do works. It simply means that true repentance that a real repentance yields a real result. It's, it's not that complicated. If you're really stopping about facing and going the other direction, that's going to be a very obvious thing seen by your actions, right? How, how can you tell whether someone's sorry about their sin or repenting of sin? Watch what happens next. Like, you know your kids have really repented or are just sorry they got caught based upon what happens, Right? Because if they immediately go back and do the same thing, they, they were sorry, but they haven't changed. Repentance. It, it, it grows legs. It grows free feet. There's activity. Yes, we're saved by faith. Not by works. But we are saved by a faith that works. Encountering Jesus. Repenting of sin being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. All of these things bring with them a fundamental change to the person who experiences them as such that people can see it. You can't judge me. You're right, I, I, I can't judge your heart. But Jesus told me very specifically to judge your fruit. What does that mean? It means to look at the things produced from your life to reach conclusions about what's happening in your heart. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul's closing argument to Agrippa is designed to kind of tie everything back to the beginning, his opening. While the Jews are upset that I teach Jesus is the Messiah, sent by God to save mankind, and while the resurrection is proof of this very reality, Paul is making it clear that these folks are tragically overlooking the reality that he's actually saying nothing other than the things that the prophets and Moses would, would happen concerning the Christ. It's as though Paul is, is meeting any skepticism of maybe his encounter with a resurrected Jesus as being the sole proof by pointing to Scripture as being the final authority. <laughs> if you don't take my word for it, how about, how about Moses or any of the other prophets for, and look at how Paul says it, they spoke that the Messiah would suffer. Isaiah and David speak of a suffering servant that would then be the first to rise from the dead. That the purpose would then to proclaim his light 
to not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Nothing that took place should have come as a surprise. It was all laid out very clearly through Old Testament prophecy. Now, as he thus made his defense, verse 24, Festus. He says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, and I love it, he doesn't back down. He says, I'm not mad, most notable Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, he knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing, speaking of Jesus and all the things he's been talking about, was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul says, and I just wonder what the cadence, what the tone had to have been. I know that you do believe. The reaction of Festus, that Paul was, quote, beside himself, literally means exactly what it says. Paul, you're, you've gone mad. You've gone crazy. You're schizophrenic. Literally, you're standing by yourself. You are beside yourself. You are out of your mind. All of these things. You've, just, you've kind of gone crazy. You've gone off the deep end. And yet Paul jumps to the opportunity, right, to defend himself saying, these things have not been done in a corner. You think I'm nuts? Here's the evidence These things happen, and there are people that can testify of them. There's no one that can, we've talked about it before. Where's the body? He says he's not crazy. But notice he says, I'm speaking words of truth and reason. I can't help but think that there had to have been something in the eyes of Agrippa that caused Paul to kind of go for the jugular. I mean, he really does. It's like he's fishing and he feels that bite, the nibble. He yanks the pole. I mean, he feels it. He says, King Agrippa, I know that you do believe. Paul is the one on trial, right? He's the one under examination. But in this moment, he flips it. It's Agrippa that's being tried. Paul says, I know you believe. It's as though in response to Festus' claim that much learning has driven him mad, Paul turns to Agrippa and says, tell him I'm not crazy. Tell him I'm not nuts. Tell him what I'm saying is true. I know you know of these things. These things weren't done in a corner. I know you're aware. Tell him how indeed the scriptures do bear witness to the claims that I'm making. Tell him you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me, and I can see him turning to the crowd, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Honestly, are there sadder words in Scripture than those uttered by King Agrippa. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. You know, the sad reality is that almost 
never cuts it in anything. If I were to give you a chicken sandwich, you're like, did you cook it? Almost. You're not going to eat it. If you're a skateboarder and you're going to jump from one building to another, and after the fact, like, how'd it go? And you're like, I almost made it. That means it ended very poorly for you, right? I all, like, when does almost work? It doesn't. You almost persuade me. The truth is he had been persuaded. The almost was his unwillingness to surrender. Almost, friend, is nothing more than the shallow consolation of those who fall short but are too prideful to admit their failure. You should give up skateboarding. But I almost made it. Yeah, you've got two casts and a back brace and you're bust. I almost. Dude, you failed. No, I almost. No, you, you failed. Look at you. It doesn't cut it, man. It's a shallow excuse. There's no one that in eternity will find it to be a, a source of, of pride that they almost made it to heaven. I almost made it. That's a bummer. Well, when Paul had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them, and when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, I just kind of want to go on a side point here because it's just the way that I think. But how, how do you think Luke was able to gain access to a private conversation that took place among Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice? I don't know, maybe I'm just the the skeptical person that reads these type of things and, and asks those type of questions. But that, to me, is kind of a head-scratcher. Like, we're told very clearly that they talked among themselves, and yet, how, do we, how was Luke made aware of such information, thus that we have it in the book of Acts? Though it's impossible to say with certainty, I do believe the case can be made, and to me, I find it convincing, that Festus is the one that communicated to Luke that they had had this conversation. Why? Because Festus had every incentive to make sure Luke recorded what had happened after Paul's speech. Not only did Festus want it made clear that he was not alone in the belief that Paul had done nothing deserving of death or chains, but then relaying this detail that Agrippa, someone who the Romans respected, sympathized with his predicament, saying that if <laughs> Paul should have been set free, but I mean, he's appealed his case to Caesar, so I understand why you have to send him. It's as though Luke including this kind of helps Festus by validating a few points in the predicament that he's in, and I think that's why we probably have it included, that Luke, as the historian, someone writing a legal brief, is told these things, hey, can you include what happened afterwards? Because Agrippa is right there with me, we don't think he's guilty. We would have released him, but he had appealed to Caesar. Now, in conclusion, we have here the final 
opportunity to comment about Paul's testimony. I mean, this is it. This is the last opportunity to make any final thoughts concerning this story. The third time here, Paul relaying it. The last time we see it in the book of Acts. And so there is one more thought that I'd like to share from kind of more of a macro perspective concerning Paul's story. There there is an element where people really do admire the Apostle Paul. I mean, you would say that even rightfully so, we put Paul up on a high pedestal. We view him with such high regard and high esteem, even going so far as to saying, second to Jesus, probably no one has, has gone to a greater extent to influence Western culture. And that could be said true based upon his writings. Paul, we should admire the man. But I think the sad thing and maybe the unintended consequence of uh, our perspective of him is that often we place him on such a high pedestal that then we then find his story and his life to be somewhat unrelatable. It's like, I mean, I, I'm not Paul. I couldn't be the Apostle Paul. I couldn't do the things he's doing. I mean, he's Paul, right? So sometimes there's a disconnect. We esteem him as we should, but sometimes then we disconnect that his story is so different from ours because I don't think it is. Like if you were to take Paul's narrative, his story, and really just simplify it into three acts, if we were gonna come up with a play of Paul's life, there would be three acts, three simple acts, right? First, act one. Paul was blinded to the gospel by his religious zeal. Some of us can sympathize with that, right? Some of us can connect to that because we too, growing up in the South, had really become blinded and disconnected to the gospel of grace because we grew up in a society that preached our works. And in our religious zeal, we just have this disconnect of everything that the gospel of Jesus and the work he did on the cross really means for me, sometimes we have to get saved again. So maybe we do relate to the religious zeal. That I was just blind to the gospel, like Paul. Now I might not have been killing Christians. I probably was beaten on them. harping on their shoulders a burden, a yoke that I was trying to carry that Jesus asked neither of us, being legalistic and judgmental. So if you had act one, Paul's blinded the gospel by his religious zeal. Maybe it wasn't religious zeal, but you were still blind through your own sin and your own rebellion, but, but we can connect to that, right? And then act two, we would title it that Paul was changed by the gospel through an encounter with Jesus also should be very relevant because whatever it was that kept us from the gospel, there was a moment when we fell to our knees or were knocked there and we said, I can't do it. And Jesus said, why have you been resisting me? Kicking against the goats. I have a better plan for you, but you're resisting that. Will you surrender? And many of us said yes. In much the same way as Paul. And then if there was a third act, it's simple that Paul, though blinded to the gospel, then changed by the gospel, was now from that point forward dedicated to sharing the gospel. 
as a minister and a witness. And here's the thing, that point shouldn't be very different from us. Because we also had an encounter that made us witnesses and ministers. But that may be the disconnect, right? Because many of us don't take Paul's calling, the same calling we share, as seriously. Understand, there's nothing different between you and Paul. Except for maybe the fact that that encounter with Jesus played itself out in a more radical, tangible way. And you're just kind of half doing it. Acts 1 and 2 are identical. But the third one shouldn't be. The only difference is that many of us don't take this same calling as seriously as Paul. And man, didn't he take it seriously? that calling to be a witness, to be a minister. As I consider, and this is kind of my final thought about Paul's testimony, is that the Spirit was not presenting Paul's life, which we have recorded three times, to present a life unattainable to the average Christian. I don't think so. Why did the Holy Spirit give us Paul's life in three occasions? It wasn't to have some ideal I could never reach, but instead to have an example that I could find to be inspiring. Because I had the same calling, I've had the same encounter, and I've been filled with the same spirit. And you know what? We also have the same lost world. It comes down to you. In his sermon, Paul as a Pattern Convert, C.H. Spurgeon said this, and I'll close with this quote. He said, There was yet another relation between Paul's conversion and the salvation of others, and it was this. It served as an impulse, driving him forward in his life work to bring sinners to Christ because the Lord had saved him. He felt that he must by all means save some. He could not be quiet. Divine love was in him like a fire. Paul, the extraordinary sinner, was saved that he might be full of extraordinary zeal and bring multitudes to eternal life. Now, I will pause here a minute to put a question. You profess to be converted, my friend. What relation has your conversion already had to other people? It ought to have a very apparent one. Has it had such? If divine grace has kindled a fire in you, it is that your fellow men may burn with the same flame. If the eternal fount has filled you with living water, it is that out of the midst of you should flow rivers of living water. You are blessed that you may bless, whom have you blessed yet? Let the question go round. Do not avoid it. This is the best return that you can make to God, that when he saveth you, you may seek to be the instruments of his hands of saving others. What have you done yet?